in service of Stefan Osage. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It is a pleasure to be bringing to you another insightful, enjoyable and adventurous episode. Today's guest was everything that that entails, which is an adventure seeker and a downright stud. I had the pleasure of speaking with ultra-distance swimmer Jono Riddler. We got to discuss the adventure he had of swimming 99.1 kilometres from Great Barrier Island in the North Island of New Zealand to the uh, international guests, all the way to Auckland. It's quite an astonishing feat that seems impossible to the average and dare I say the above average person. We got to explore his journey as to how he ventured into such dark and long swims from his humble upbringing, from how he got into swimming, his training processes, his nutrition, recovery, how he ate during such a swim, and much, much more. We, of course, couldn't gleam over the big cause for such a swim, which was essentially raising awareness for the Hauraki Gulf, which is in need of urgent action to protect and sustain the amazing ocean ecosystem. Brought up a lot about what's required and what's necessary to tackle any big feat in life, whether it be a 100-kilometer ocean swim or whether it be overcoming the loss of a wife or overcoming a loss of a business or having to confront your new potential boss to ask for a pay rise or whether or not you're trying to build this sustainable ecosystem up in the northland region of New Zealand and you can't get any consent from the banks. Whatever it may be, whatever uh, venture you're trying to go for, this, this episode and what Jono Riddler brought up in the conversation really accentuates the fact that you must be patient, you must persist and despite the circumstances, despite the barriers to entry, you can, if you have the will, get through and confront and ultimately conquer what it is you need to. So I won't ramble on too much more. Uh, I'd just like to kind of go to a bit of the other news, which is the podcast being brought to you by So Well. So Well is my holistic health coaching services where I offer yoga training, I offer nutritional advice and health coaching. Whatever it is you are wanting to essentially achieve in life, I'm working to work with you to facilitate and create that change that you so desire. Whatever it may be, we can work together and create something that's sustainable and that you can carry over for the rest of your life. So if you are interested, the website's actually in a bit of a, a refurbishment, you could say, but you can check out my services via Instagram um, and Facebook, which is capital S, capital O, capital W, E double L, where you can find out more. Anyway, I won't hold you guys anymore, and I thank you for listening thus far. But here is the conversation of Jono Riddler. Speak soon. Great, Jono. Well, firstly, appreciate you for being here. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Like, firstly, like, how, how are you doing what you've done? Doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, body's feeling good. Yeah. Mind is good. Yeah. You know, I've got like a, I've got one niggle yeah. <laughs> on my wrist and that's about it. Otherwise, I've, I've gone back into the gym and done a little bit of swimming and yeah. now uh, 
going through some of the things that we wanted to achieve post swim mm. um, around the advocacy piece around mm. the action and and obviously we've got a lot of awareness but now actually driving mm. on the back of that so definitely switch gears like there was a lot of focus in the lead up and and you know doing the swim on on the physical side of things mm. and getting that awareness out there and now yeah, it's uh, it's changed a little bit and we're changing trajectory to to try and get that that action so it's it's been interesting kind of at the same time assimilating back into into normal life and, mm. and working and mm. <laughs> not not to say that I wasn't doing that the mm. whole time as well but you know just uh, reflecting as much as anything mm. Mm. yeah you, you spoke about the advocacy piece and the whole I guess impetus for this effort you wanted to do and I definitely want to get into that so that in itself I think is kind of a piece that people really need to know because that's why you did it right mm. it's one thing to do the physical component and swim 100 kilometers which is for those listening and watching that's what you've done and achieved uh that that's one thing but to know the the cause so i'd love to explore into that but firstly your pinky can you explain that <laughs> Like yeah yeah from the amount of strokes needed to do what you've done mm. if you could kind of break that down and what happened and that whole process well, i had quite a few kind of weird uh interesting after effects physically after the swim and and one of those was uh, a very bruised pinky so on the inside of my pinky down through my palm and then pain on the outside of my wrist and uh, how that came about was from swimming in my stroke uh, my pinky was, you know, ever so slightly lifting, probably three centimeters and doing that 50,000 times, it caused quite a bit of pain. And uh, I could feel it during the course of the swim, but you know, what are you going to do? You just, yeah, you just yeah. have to keep going. Yeah. So mm. how, how could you mitigate that moving forward? Because I'm presuming this isn't over for you. You've probably got this insatiable desire now. Don't want to go there just yet, but hey, that's another story. But in terms of like technique because you've you've obviously done so much preparation for this and yeah it's, it's just a technique thing so that would just require more awareness around that when stroking like how how would you have mitigated that yeah it's it's a technical deficiency mm. so i think how it's come about is when i uh take a stroke on my right arm is it's almost like a counterbalance in a way i see uh i see so i'll, I'll definitely be working on that because i don't want to have to go through that again and mm. now even you know trying to swim that's the that's the one area that's that's still painful so it's a it's a sign that pain that i need to improve on mm. it and do something that that will be more sustainable over a you know potentially longer duration in the future yeah. yeah so could you basically explain and break down what it is that you actually that you've just done this this current one i want to talk about your previous um accomplishments because th those by themselves are phenomenal but this in particular what you've just done could you explain and break down what exactly it was that you've achieved yeah so we swam from well, i swam with a with a crew of you know 16 people out out on the water from great barrier to back to auckland to campbell's bay and swimming around the back of little barrier as well so we set off from karaka bay on Great Barrier, and that's a place that's you know I've, I've got some history and and that's meaningful to me. Uh, and then we basically traversed across to Little Barrier, swung around there, went through Tiritiri Passage, uh, in between you know the uh, Gulf Peninsula and and Tiritiri Maitangi, 
and then on to Campbell's Bay from there. Mm. So the target was uh, originally it was it was Naranek Beach, which is a little bit further down the coast. Uh, you know there was some inclement weather and and pretty bad conditions, mm. so ended up pulling it a little bit uh, earlier, and um, and made close to that close to that hundred k mm. uh, target distance. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of the the swim in a nutshell. It was aiming for the 100k uh, just as a as a bit of a marker because that hadn't been done before in New Zealand like that that was that was one of the motivations was just this outrageous kind of distance but uh, more so it was it was something that I think would capture the attention of people as well mm. you know saying like a hundred kilometers and and that then fed really nicely into the cause that that we were looking to drum up some attention for because mm. not many people correct me if i'm wrong but in the world there's only a small percentile already doing what you do but having achieved that distance you're already in a minuter amount of the percentage yeah. of the world swimmers population yeah it's one thing in the world's population but in the world swimmers population yeah you're in this minute quotient mm. yeah yeah there's there's a few different like types of uh swims as well that that you can undertake so i guess to um you know put it into perspective you've got river swims which are very mm. much like uh current assisted <laughs> like the, the current could be flowing at five knots an mm. hour or something like that so that's kind of a, a category on its own and then you've got current neutral uh ocean swims uh you've got lake swims and then you've got like multi-segment ocean swims as well so in terms of like that, that's what I'm really measuring myself against is those current neutral mm. swims. And there's probably, I don't know, a dozen, dozen people that have cracked a hundred K. I'm not one of those, <laughs> even though I came yeah, close. True. But... Yeah. Cause what, what did it ended up being and why, why was it? Cause yeah, um, uh, you obviously weather conditions, but in terms of your lucidity, that was, you're almost completely delusional, right? <laughs> I'm not completely delusional, like okay. partially delusional. <laughs> um, yeah, the the main the main driver was the the weather conditions. Yeah. So it was yeah it was really really blowing and we had some uh, pretty extreme waves at that at that stage for for that body of water. Uh, yeah, winds winds were in excess at, at times of 25 knots, getting up to 30 knots. Swell was about two meters, and and we had waves that were crashing over me and the support boat next to me. So, one of the concerns was actually that this inflatable that that was alongside me was going to crash onto me uh, at night, and and so it was yeah it was a, getting a little mm. bit sketchy. I was, you know, physically not in the best of ways, mm. um, but yeah, it was definitely more, I think, driven by the conditions at the time. In combination with with a few mm. other things, so Naranek Beach would have been another maybe six k from where we were wow. at that point, um, <clears throat> and uh, the the stretch that we were just about to enter into, which is between Campbell's Bay and Caster Bay, uh, the waves um, were pretty fierce and they were bouncing off the cliffs as well, mm. so there wasn't anywhere safe. To be able to land if we did need to mm. and of course i'm not making any of these decisions of course of <laughs> the crew yeah the crew's yeah. just driving me and yeah. flogging me hard to yeah. to get there 
but then uh, they made the call off Campbell's Bay, you know, we're, we're going to stop now. Uh, are you okay with that? And I said, I, apparently, I, I don't remember this, but I don't want to die tonight. And then, and then we swam, <laughs> swam into Campbell's Bay and, and that was the end of it. Wow, so what it had to be an extremely considered um, decision, especially with your whole team behind you, it mm. makes sense. And I guess that's, that would have been part of your process too in selecting your team that carried this event out with you because they were with you the whole time as you would have had to trust these people and you would have had to be so stringent on who it is that you got, not only for someone that is able to make rational decisions, but someone that's understanding your mindset and you obviously had to go into the dungeons of pain so there's probably that fine balance of finding that sort of crew. How did, how was that process kind of, how did that go? You know, how did you even select? Who did you come to first? Mm. Yeah, the, the crew was uh, reasonably large for, mm. for something like this. So we had 16 people out on the water. That was a combination of people that I had selected. So swimmers that, that I knew and that I had been with other, uh, they've been, been on other journeys with me before. So. They knew me, uh, I knew how they operated, and then there were a few other people that were brought in by Live Ocean, uh, some of the sailing community, so that was really helpful in terms of their knowledge wow. of boats and, and the like, and then we had a couple of medics as well. So the swimmers uh, that, that were there, um, yeah, they, like I said, they, they knew me, they kind of knew how I operated and, and worked and uh, were able to pick up on those kind of uh, hidden cues in a way that mm. you know other people wouldn't be able to to see where where you know you either give that hard word or you give the kind word. <laughs> so we talked quite a bit like in the lead up about uh, how you know my preferences around around treatment, and I did say at some point you know you're going to have to flog me, and I, I'm not going to be able to tell you when that is, but you're just going to have to you know you're going to have to be able to pick up on it. Mm. Uh, and I think they did. I think they picked up on that well. Yeah, as soon as I started getting snappy, that, that lippy back to them, that's that's when they, you know, drove hard. <laughs> nice. So, mm. yeah, I want to also touch on with you doing the swim. You had you followed the Marathon Swimming Federation criteria, mm. and that meant no wetsuit. So, it's one thing to have done what you've done, but the fact that you did it without a wetsuit, so you're basically in speedos. How? how the fuck could you prepare for that like what's involved there because yeah. that in itself it's you know there are cold temperatures and it's one thing you probably understand this being in an ice bath when you're in an ice bath it's still but when you're in an ocean it may be slightly warmer than an ice bath but when you've got undercurrent and that flow it's intensifying that cold so how, how did you prepare for that and why is it that is was that the only way for that um record to have been certified had to follow that marathon swimming federation criteria yeah and we're, we're still working through the verification of it yeah yeah so yeah. at this stage it's unofficial but yeah one of one of the rules is as you pointed out is that you can't wear a wetsuit so it's just a, a normal pair of togs for a man that that's a pair of togs above the knees and below the waist uh, so i was wearing jammers uh, which are kind of like bike shorts in a way yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and then one, one cap, one pair of goggles. Those are the kind of, from a kit perspective, that, that, that's the, um, those are the limitations. And I've done like a lot of cold water training. Like I, I started uh, first swimming non-wetsuit throughout, throughout the course of the year. So swimming in winter back in 2018 in preparation for Cook Strait. 
and over time I've just, you know, crept that up. Uh, the water wasn't super cold, like it was 19 degrees or there or thereabouts, just under. Uh, but for a long period of time, you know, it's cool. The water's mm. cool. It's definitely not warm. Uh, and yeah, mo most certainly I was hypothermic at the end of it. Um, like mildly, mild to moderate hypothermia. Uh, but, you know, I was taking on, one of the mitigations for that was taking on hot feeds okay. throughout the course of it. So, you know, a lot of my feeding is, is liquid and almost like one of them was almost like a a milo type type drink it wasn't milo okay, okay. <laughs> but like a, a chocolate flavored internal um, yeah so getting that internal heating mm. i think that's psychological as much as anything mm. but um movement helps having some hot, hot stuff coming in mm. uh and a lot of preparation i was wow. uh i'm right now i'm about 76 maybe 77 kilos at the start of the swim, I was eighty-one kilos. Yeah, yeah. So put on a little bit of, little bit of fat. Um, you have to, which be right? I, so yeah, regulation. Yeah, and buoyancy. Yeah, the yeah. buoyancy effects. It does mm. slow you down a little bit. Yeah. So it's like yeah. a, it's a cost. Yeah, you got to got to weigh mm. those up against each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm um, I'm aware of uh, you. Obviously, be aware of Ross Edgley. Mm. Those listening, watching, he's yeah an amazing athlete. Uh, he swam around Great Britain, and that was the biggest thing that he had to factor in was the fact of yeah putting on that weight. You had to put on that extra mass because it's buoyancy, but it's also for your thermal regulation because obviously more fat kind of insulates heat more. Mm. So yeah, I noticed that because you 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 got well not you weren't fat, but you got thick. So it makes sense. Yeah, a lot of people probably don't really realize that it's a huge factor. You're gonna have to go into that that pushing that you're definitely not in the deficit. That's for sure going into that yeah and i think sometimes uh in open water swimming that swimmers can go a little bit overboard with that okay so they can go too far the other way where they put on loads of fat <laughs> and that can be unhealthy in a way you can be like pre-diabetic uh from putting on too much too too quick you know one of my um <laughs> one of my swimming buddies uh he was training for the north channel which is between Ireland and, and Scotland and that's pretty cold over there you know 12 degrees 13 degrees is pretty normal for for summer and uh, and it's about 35k uh, in a straight line and he was drinking something like a liter or two liters of apple juice every day to pile on <laughs> pile on weight and I think he put on something like 20 kilos which is uh, definitely not healthy so I think you can go too far mm. the other way it's about that balance mm. of Know, what's going to be beneficial versus what is actually detrimental in a sense mm -hmm. because not only is it the um, pre-diabetic side of things it's the extra inflammation that you get mm -hmm. in your body and of course all these things are not very helpful GI to distress yep. you know dysbiosis yeah as you could say pre-diabetic risk oh, all of that would factor in mm. especially into the training load the recovery yeah um so i don't want to go away from it because i had had the thought in my mind when it came to that cold and training for the cold i observed on your um, instagram that you're doing a lot of cold exposure and ice baths can you talk about that and how much that was factored into the preparation for this yeah so i first bought an ice bath or chest freezer back in when was it 2021 in preparation for fovo straight which was you know reasonably cool cool waters down there uh 14 15 degrees and uh 
that was a way at the time of building up to, you know, swimming in those colder waters while there wasn't the mm. cold water up in up in Auckland. It was probably 21 degrees at, at, the, at that time, uh, at the height of summer. And I've used uh, my ice bath a lot since, like it was sitting at about maybe six or seven degrees in training for FOVA. And, um, and recently I've dialed it down to about one degree. So I was sitting in it uh, for, you know, 30 minutes, at, wow. up to 30 minutes at one degree um, in, the, <laughs> in the lead up to this. And, and that was good for the physical adaptation, but also the mental side of things, you know, just staying in there when, um, when it's not super comfortable. That's serious. So like I thought I was thinking well, you'd do it in chunks of like three, five minutes, but 30 minutes at one degree. Like yeah. I've done an ice bath. Mm. I know how hard that is. I do it three minutes. Five minutes I think is my max. Yes. So for those listening, like it's, it's you're burning up. You would have gone numb. You must have been going numb at that point. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, yeah. you, you go numb like uh, all over. Your uh, body takes on that kind of... Uh, red <laughs> yeah. red look I, I don't know if you've had that before where yeah. everything that the cold touches it it just yeah. goes very pink uh there's definitely a level of hypothermia you know where i'm shaking while i'm in the chest freezer uh which isn't you know it's not super healthy or anything like that but it's good for good for cold adaptation yeah. and getting used to it and then the after drop on the other side of that is um is pretty wicked mm. yeah wow I just need people to kind of like process that. Like it's one thing doing the cold training, but being in there for, for half an hour. So was that when you were peaking or was that kind of, you just set that arbitrary number, like why 30 and what, how did you kind of, did you progress upon that? Or was that just kind of your sustained method? Yeah, I think when I first got in at one degree, it was, I was probably getting in for about 15 minutes or so. And so I thought, oh, I can, I wanted to get in for for longer, like up to an hour. Uh, but just didn't have, I guess, the time to progress up to that um, from when I had started at that to, um, to when I eventually finished doing my ice baths in, in preparation. And I didn't really need to either. Like I was still doing a lot of cold water, or not cold water swimming, but ocean swimming mm. to get used to what, what the feel of the, the water would be like. So 30 minutes was, I felt like that was enough of a challenge. Mm. So yeah, it was a, an arbitrary number that I just settled on, but I feel like I, I could probably go for longer. Uh, you just, I think you, uh, if you set a set a target of some kind, this is what I kind of realised was like setting that hundred kilometre mark. If you set a target for yourself, it's um, you'll do what you can to push to to get there. Mm, if you know mm, what I mean? Mm. It's good to kind of have that milestone to hit. Plus, it means you know you're kind of progressing in the direction that you intend. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about, like, your process of becoming a swimmer. How did this sort of begin? And then I'd like to talk about how did it begin from wanting to be a swimmer to then going out to doing these insane distances. Mm. Yeah. I I first started doing a little bit of, like, swimming lessons when I was younger. Uh, not sure exactly what age. I, th I think it was around when I was about eight years old or so. I did that for four or so years until uh, until I could get away from it because I really didn't enjoy it. Um, following the black line wasn't really my <laughs> my thing, and I was much more interested in in ball sports and team sports and the like. So I've always kind of played sports. Uh, we grew up a lot 
uh, around the ocean and you know spent a lot of time around the water growing up my dad's been a um, surfer since he was 15 and you know there's I'm not gonna give his age away but <laughs> there's a lot of decades that have passed since so we always you know we'd always spend time around the around the beach and and lakes growing up so I, I spent a lot of time around the water so there was always that kind of inclination to mm. to be there uh, but it wasn't until I was 21 I had a, a shoulder injury in in Canada that I sustained while snowboarding and then coming back to New Zealand as a way of rehabbing that I got into the pool and, and it was turning my arm over mm. and that was really good for um for rehabbing it and then uh, my dad and one of my brothers were aiming to do an ocean swim later that year across Auckland's harbour and uh, that was a you know a 2.8k ocean swim and so I built myself up to um to do that uh, that was uh, a really difficult challenge for me at the time and ended up finishing that and then on the back of that I, I really did get hooked I, I was pretty elated coming out of that swim mm. and then you know it built up from 2.8k to later doing the Rangitoto swim which is about 5k wow. and then uh, thinking what you know what else can I do so I really had like a, a leaning for the endurance type Yep. activities and and wanting to understand more about what I can do with my body and my mind and that's progressed over the last you know particularly so over the last five years mm. like after doing that uh, first marathon distance 10k distance in 2016 uh, and signing up for cook straight on the back of that like over the last four or five years doing cook straight Lake Taupo, Fovo straight uh, out to the poor nights and back and then recently this uh, this one from Great Barrier like that's yeah it's really got, gone kind it's of been a real kind of linear progression yeah yeah great it's organic in a way which yeah. is nice yes it's not yeah. too like far out of reach and now you've set this precedent it's kind of like I don't know what next <laughs> that's that's the question I, I, want, I want to go there at the end because I guess yeah <laughs> there's there's something to that you know i think it's it's quite fascinating because how do you you know where do you draw the line but i guess it's the thing with life eh? it's that constant improvement and who knows probably revisit again and <laughs> yeah. quicker you know there's always these things that come up uh it, it's it's great that um how it's funny because i've heard similar stories that when people get into a certain path that it's kind of it was it wasn't necessarily considered you know, it kind of just happened. You had, you could say you kind of had the prerequisites from when you were a child, you know, having done swimming lessons, didn't like the pool, and then you got a shoulder injury, and then lo and behold, mm. you are swimming. Yeah. I've heard similar stories, so I find that it gives it, it, gives it a bit more um, authenticity in your approach. And Yeah. Yeah, like you say, it was, it was never really intentional to get to where I am now, and, you know, Cook Straight was uh, a goal on its own. It wasn't like I, I had all these other things lined up yeah. on the back of that. But yeah, it's it's been very very natural, very organic, coming to where I am now, and yeah, we can talk about the, <laughs> the next steps and where you draw the line yeah, because yeah. that's yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Mm. So the Cook Strait for the international listeners, you've got the New Zealand, which consists of the North Island and South Island. The Cook Strait is basically the channel between the tip of the South Island and the tail of the North Island. That's the Cook Strait. That's right. And then the other swim he mentioned before was the Fovo Strait, which is the tip, sorry, the, the tail 
of the South Island and um, Stewart Island, and that's that straight. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, yep. that's the body of water between yeah. those two. Yeah. And that, that, that temperature must have been more intense than the Cook Strait, or is Cook Strait quite intense? Because you've uh, still got that Arctic current, yeah. it's basically Antarctic water. Yeah. So what, what was the differential temperatures there? Cook was a, a little bit more mellow when I did it, at, at least. But yeah, when you're going across, and this was the case for, for both of those, uh, swims when you're going across those bodies of water there's um, currents that can carry really cold water that just they appear out of nowhere mm. and it, it dro it'll drop the temperature by you know a couple of degrees and then it'll be gone so th that was something interesting to deal with when I was coming into the South Island the temperature dropped pretty uh, considerably um, so Will Trubridge who was he was doing um, Freediver who was who was doing it underwater that same day, so he'd go oh, really? go under for thirty seconds, pop his <laughs> head up, <laughs> back under for for another thirty seconds, and he did that across um, across Cook Strait. He measured it at fourteen degrees on the South Island wow. side on his watch. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but that sounds like it, it was about right. So probably like an hour off reaching the South Island, it did you know the temperatures really really dropped. But we had some sun, which always helps. And then mm. for Bovo, I mean, it was it was pretty cool to start off with and mm. warmed up a little bit as as we went. Luckily, again, sun on the back, which always helps. Cool. And then, so, sorry, in terms of cool to start with. So that was your first kind of long ocean swim effort. When you say that, what do you mean? Oh, you is mean? it? It was uh, cold. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The waters were cold. I see. Yeah. It was cool to start. Yeah, I yeah, see. yeah, yeah. The I waters see. were colder on on Stewart Island where we started okay. versus coming into the South Island where I think okay. the degree variation would have been maybe like a degree and a half mm, mm. Celsius. Uh, again, for, for FOVO, it was a period of probably about 20 minutes or so where the, the temperature would drop and then it would go back up to normal and drop and back up. And dealing with that for, for a long period of time, that, that was actually quite yeah. difficult. It's just these currents that that are coming like sub-antarctic kind of currents that are whipping through <laughs> so yeah interesting um interesting to experience that so similar um protocol too in terms of the uh marathon swimming federations criteria just in your yeah just in the top heights and oh my gosh yeah that's, that's right yeah but you can build you can build up to that kind of thing right yeah. like you know yeah, you can you can adapt to the cold and uh my first winter of swimming was pretty pretty rough up up here in Auckland but over time yeah, yeah. Your, your body definitely adapts you get that nice brown adipose tissue yeah, and yeah, mentally yeah. you get more used to it and yeah, yeah, yeah your wanna, body can do some amazing things yeah yeah I want to talk about that as the mental component because obviously you need a whole heap of that mm. uh where did your mind go during the course yeah, of the... yeah 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 like what what mm. yeah for that or it's hard to obviously kind of synthesize because it was what 30 35 hours 34 hours uh just over 30 <laughs> just over 33 yeah <coughs> mm. where did my mind go I, I i kind of let it run for as as long as as long as it uh as long as it stayed in a, a reasonably positive frame of mind mm. and you know that that worked out all right uh and then as soon as things got negative and 
inevitably that that happens maybe you get some kind of pain that sends you into a bit of a negative spiral or something happens and you get thrown off uh, just bringing my mind back through counting and that's a strategy I've employed before and pretty common strategy actually I found for both ultra runners and ultra swimmers is doing counting so I just count one and two one two ma match my stroke and then try to get back to that flow state as much as possible mm. so you're really just trying to empty your mind and keep it free of anything, keep it hollow for hours and hours and hours on end, which can be quite tiring in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it gets to a point where you're just, hence the word endurance, you're just enduring. You're kind of, the mind's going to always do what it does. So did you, you use that um, counting method? Is there any other practices outside of that that you've um, utilized, like meditation practice or mantras? You yep. said the one too, but is that is that part of that process mm. too, where your mind goes dark? Yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah, outside of the counting, the meditation practice in the lead up mm. is helpful because it makes you aware of your mm. thoughts and uh, that you can do something with them before they derail you. Mm. Otherwise, you know, if you if you let them take you down a certain path and you go too far down that, then yeah, that can be devastating the, the mental size is as important as the physical side even if not more uh yeah. any other strategies i think coming back to the why always you know if, yeah. if i if i'm in a difficult space physically or mentally then trying to you know, remember why i'm doing something mm. and then just trying to enjoy it as much as possible as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not just it's not just enduring it it is enjoying it as well yeah, it's true no, that's good. I think that's good for people to remind it too. Uh, remember too is that there is that piece where you can try find some peace and enjoyment and suffering. I yeah, guess. I mean, like how, how many times have I, am I going to be able to do, Yeah, you know, have an experience like that? So, yeah, yeah. yeah had to, I did have to remind myself on a few occasions to uh, to enjoy it as much as possible. Mm. Mm. That got harder as, as, we went, <laughs> as we went along. Yeah. So obviously you're, you're up the whole time. So is that a piece as well, practicing sleep deprivation, or you kind of just knew that on the day this will just be reality, you'll just be sleep deprived? Yeah, some swimmers say you can't practice sleep deprivation. Some swimmers say you can. I was more of the frame of mind that it's better to try it out beforehand mm. than get found out on the day. Okay. And so we did do... A group of us did a little bit of sleep deprivation training earlier this year. I've done something similar the year prior as well in a pool uh, and swimming through the night. So the goal was to swim from 12 p.m. one day uh, through to 12, uh, I think it was 12 p.m. the next day, or 8 a.m. or something along those lines. So over a you know sustained period of time through the night and just see how that how that felt. Uh, I was injured at the time, unfortunately, so I didn't do a lot of swimming. <laughs> I was just doing water jogging and then staying awake, doing crosswords on the side of the pool. <laughs> and that was fine. And then, yeah, the sleep deprivation for the actual swim was a, was a non-event. I had a couple of no-dos at, yeah, uh, yeah. at nightfall on, on that first night and just having some gels that had a little bit of caffeine content in them as well. And I didn't get tired. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, you've done it, so obviously it worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about the training and preparation for this because that's that's a massive piece. And, you know, people listening, there's some geeks out there that want to know uh, 
like in preparation for this what was your block the window the training block how many weeks did you kind of set yourself because obviously you had you already had that baseline having done the previous swims so you kind of had that mentally going in but i imagine physically too so what was the time frame like firstly for that training block for the specific swim so for uh for the leader like a, yes, in, in terms yes. of the training the lead, yeah, yeah 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 we well, i first started training back in august of last year of 2022 and i set for myself because i'm all i'm self self-coached i set for myself a pretty nice training arc building up from i think it was something like 30 or 40 k's per week peaking at 100 k's per week of swimming mm-hmm. across three weeks and then moving into a taper from there mm. and that that was a gradual build it was three weeks on one week off uh, three weeks of uh building and then one week of of lower volume mm. and then going back that three one pattern like a deload yeah yep. deload build yep. deload yeah mm. and that was going great until about end of november early december i was having about I don't know, 75 Ks per week or so at that stage. Their their original target date approximately that that we had set was the end of March uh, to to build up to. So so I had that in mind. Anyway, it was all going well until uh, until I got injured. (laughs) Oh, jeez. At the end of end of November, uh, beginning of December. So I was I was out for about two months. Wow. And during that time, I was doing quite a bit of cross training. So you know, seeing the physio to try to get my shoulder right uh, and yeah, a lot of cross training on the stationary bike. I was um, doing some kick work in the pool until I couldn't anymore because my uh, phalanges got bruised <laughs> and uh, and then I'd spend yeah, hours and hours on the stationary bike which wasn't that um, uh, enjoyable. Phalanges on your toes, you mean? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> And the, spending the time on the stationary bike wasn't that enjoyable. No. Like one session I did six hours on the stationary bike. Um, and I'm not a cyclist, but you know, I just had to keep, yeah. keep doing stuff yeah. um, until my, basically until my legs fell off. <laughs> wow. And then eventually at the, at the end of Jan, it was like starting to come right. Like there was enough of a hint. And the swim was really still in doubt. Like I, I didn't know whether I'd, I'd be able to do it or not, but went out on a limb tried it in a longer swim session and uh and it, uh, my shoulder my left shoulder held up okay and so then we reset the window for the end of april mm. uh, for the swim and, and that's when like the phase two of the training build began which uh on a week by week basis it was you know a couple of strength and conditioning mm. workouts so really focusing on on that for prehab and rehab uh, a couple of sessions in the pool and then long ocean swims in, mm. in the weekend. Uh, and you know that was starting off at three hours back to back across Saturday, Sunday, and then building up uh, to 10 hours back to back and ultimately three eight hour swims across Easter weekend, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then four hours on the, on the Monday. And you know some of those swims will be starting at um, 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning out uh out in the ocean just to a avoid the sun mm. but be also um get used to what it was like swimming at night mm. mm-hmm. so lots of lots of vo- volume my 
uh, you know, the, the highest, uh, my peak week, which was that Easter weekend week, uh, that was about 32 hours of swimming across that week. And then, uh, you know, everything else that's around that, like stretching and planning and all the rest of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like you really executed it, uh, with, with the injury piece that must've just, that could have broken you, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, it was, it was difficult emotionally for sure. I had, had my birthday on the 2nd of January, which was kind of in the middle of, of when I was injured and that was, I was just an emotional wreck. Yeah. How yeah. did you, what, how do you read, if you look back, how do you rebound from that? What tools did you use? Because people yeah. obviously will face this all the time. They yes. have a target, yeah. something comes in, will derail you. It's quick to kind of go into that parasympathetic state where the mind's like, nah, you're failing, go into that fight place, you're going, it's all imploding. But really there's that, there's that second you have or that minute you have to be like, well, actually, Maybe I should just, you know, maybe this is probably a blessing or whatever, whatever tools you could use. But how did you sort of combat that? Mm. Yeah, it's not easy. Uh, I think, you know, my, my initial reaction was one of denial. Like I, I didn't want to want to believe that I was actually injured. And that's probably the, the worst thing that you can do. So there was a framework that I picked up from a sports psychologist during this injury period uh, where the best thing to do in the first instance is actually to accept it, mm. accept that you're injured, and then adapt. So maybe I wasn't able to swim the volumes that I wanted to, but what else could I do? Okay, I'll get on the stationary bike and, you know, or I'll do something else. And then to act on that. So mm. accept, adapt, act. And there's no guarantee that I was going to be better. Uh, but I just had to try to keep going in, in faith that mm. things would work out and as it happens they did good on you man it's because i think that's something that people could just take away if it's anything that you know life is almost like a something to endure and you know you, we have these goals and targets but things can just quickly just completely destroy that mm. well seemingly destroy it but if you've got the grip the willingness sounds like you tapped into that i think that that in itself is something massive for people to take away through this process yeah i think it's uh, it's tough as well like my natural inclination is to want to control yes. <laughs> the situation and you know when you're training and your body feels great you can do that but as soon as you get an injury you're you're kind of out of the driver's seat until yeah. to an extent like there's things yeah. that you can do to obviously correct mm. it and i was doing all the exercises i could mm. to, to get back on uh, on uh, on the horse as quick as possible mm. but you know i think it's that that sense of that lack of control that that can be quite tough for other people to deal with yeah and emotionally emotionally dealing with it and it does happen so yeah having having some tools is is good and and things that you can come back to mm. Mm. yeah great with with the i want to kind of go back into the training a bit because i myself train a bit with the gym the gym component how how did you i'm presuming a lot of shoulder a lot of lats a lot of mm. i imagine core too because you need to kind of have your trunk quite pliable and malleable swimming such a long time what what did that look like and how did you kind of approach that from mm -hmm. a training perspective initially i was doing a lot of work with the physio focusing in on my rotator cuff and scapular strength okay and building that back up there was a bit of an imbalance across across my body and 
yeah, posturally as well, uh, just making sure that I was that I had had a good posture and that was reinforced through some of those exercises. And then later it became more building up uh, my you know some of these key muscles. So mm. things that you've talked about, like shoulders, mm. uh, doing a little bit of work as well on on my um, my back, lats, traps. Um, and uh and some chest work and then and then core work i didn't completely ignore my legs as well i do some yeah. you know things like squats and lunges just a little bit to right. help out with strength through areas like the hip flexors it's not uh you know i don't kick a lot or do anything like that so it's just around that mm. full body kind of stability mm. as much as anything mm. so yeah some of the exercises that that i'd come back to uh you know, I did did a lot of pull-ups. I think that's like a good functional yep. kind of yep. <laughs> kind of thing. Dips, uh, push-ups, uh, yeah, a range of different shoulder exercises, um, lots of little rotator cuff type movements with small mm. weights. Mm. Yeah, range of different different things to to mm. build my body up and um, and also work on those smaller muscles at the yeah. same time. So I imagine it would have looked similar to say a traditional kind of um training block if you're wanting to build muscle would probably be that four week kind of build and taper or was it kind of just the constant progressive sort of overload throughout did you kind of factor that in into the strength side of things yeah not not really my my second the second phase of my training i didn't have that three week on one week off okay it was just <laughs> get as much in as I could over what was about a 10 week period or so. Okay. So with the swimming, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't really take my foot off the gas with that yeah. as well. It was, uh, yeah, I d didn't really give my, myself any kind of a break, which at the end of the day, it did actually work out and I didn't get too fatigued. And yeah. Yeah. So very different. I, I think I, I like that three week on one week off uh kind of approach but mm. had to change things a little bit to actually do what i felt needed to be done to prepare mm. Mm. yeah great fascinating that should hopefully appease some of the geeks out there appeases me so <laughs> it's interesting i'd love to it would be not to obviously you've already got a lot on your plate but i'd love to if, if you track that i'd love to see that side of things mm. if you tracked that much of the data if you recorded it that would be fascinating obviously you don't want to give too much away but there's a lot of people out there i'm i'm curious myself because yeah person not to deviate from the conversation i'm actually preparing for my first ironman next year and swimming is something i ain't good at <laughs> i'm building i'm at the point now where i'm getting my my distances improving but you know doing what you've done i'd love to sort of take away mm. you know practical components that i could utilize or even just for the layperson mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not super protective of, of anything. I've kept a swimming log for years and years, although I, I kind of ditched it a little bit uh, over the last couple of months. And now, because it's so out of date, I don't think I'll go back to it either. But, you know, I was keeping my uh, a track of all of my workouts each day and where I was resting and, and doing everything like that. Not not my gym workouts, but, um, yeah, what, what I found actually toward the... Uh, and that, that second phase of training was it, it was less about distance. I had a gauge on what, what kind of distance I was doing, but it was actually more about time. Mm, okay. 
so I changed the changed the measurements in a way. Okay. Uh, time so, and water, obviously, right? Yeah, time yeah. and the water, time yeah. swimming. Yeah, great. Um, but you know, happy to help you with yeah. <laughs> oh, with your build. Uh, yeah, outside of this, yeah, I'd love to. I'll, I'll send you a text. You know, I'll yeah. show you. I've got a great coach, um, uh, Matt Kerr. He's an Ironman. Oh, athlete. good one. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I've talked to Matt. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah, he's, he's, he's good value. Well, it? Yeah, um, he is. And his whole approach and philosophy, you know, I, I just, yeah, want someone that, yeah, obviously, philosophically, share same values, but that's doing and is at the forefront, you know. Yeah, very high level and, yeah. you know, his, his, his being there, so he's walking the talk. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you want yeah. that. So to bring it to the swim, I... Obviously, we, we, we touched on it, but um, basically swimming for the Hodaki, right? That that was the that was the main cause, and yeah. I love this part, this little piece you wrote, testing the limits of human endurance to spotlight the need for action. Yeah. I think that's a great great little kind of slogan. So what what what's the action? What what's needed to happen, and how is this gonna happen? You know, what's the next steps forward? Yeah, I I wanted to do this swim because I've had it in mind for a little while but I wanted to do it for something that was bigger than me something that was meaningful something that I could use uh, that I could use the swim to bring attention to and and to use the swim as a platform you know for for me to be able to drive that attention to to that cause that was meaningful so uh, I've swum you know a lot out in the ocean I've had some amazing experiences I've been able to you know, swim with uh, all kinds of different fish life, with sharks, with manta rays, with stingrays, next to workups, diving gannets, like just amazing experiences. And I've uh, just been blown away by the beauty of the ocean. And, um, you know, what, what I've seen over the last five or so years in, in, swimming, <laughs> in swimming in the ocean is... Uh, just uh, even in, in that short period of time as a degradation in our um, marine ecosystems and it's really uh, in tandem with that I've become increasingly passionate around mm. wanting to uh, protect it in, in some kind of way and, and thinking about the next generation and you know I've got this vision where in the hauraki we can just have this amazingly thriving ocean and one of the most alive oceans in the world but right now we're we're quite far separated from mm. from that vision mm. uh, you know we we have massive amounts of sedimentation in the water mm. the water is is dirty and especially so after the you know the likes of the storm that we've been having recently there's just sewage runoff that's pouring out into the water um, so that's one thing and, and that's very clear when when you're swimming in it mm. is how cloudy the water uh, can be uh, we've got kind of barrens around um, around the islands because the the kind of don't really have the same level of net natural predators that, that they have had previously, um, and so you know they they kind of mow down these kelp forests, and the kelp is uh, you know a really vital part of of the wider ecosystem, and so when that happens, it has a cascading effect to everything else and. Uh, we've still got bottom trawling and scallop dredging in the in the Hauraki Gulf, and we're ripping up the seabed. And um, these are all things that you know that I've seen the effects of. 
um, massive amounts of overfishing and to me it's sad to see that and to think that you know there's no uh, concrete action that's being taken mm -hmm. to change that trajectory and yeah fortunately out of this swim there's been a pretty significant amount of awareness and attention that's been brought good to that and off the back of that now we're looking to try some action as well yeah great mm. yeah i watched that little video prior to because you came on my radar was like a week before and i was like this dude you know and then i watched the short documentary i'm not sure what it was actually a short short clip and there's um i see there's like a massive infestation of seaweed upon was it like coral was it like some coral like with some reefs and disrupting like that ecosystem that's all part of that i'm presuming uh there's like an invasive weed on great barrier at the moment that they're tussling with over there but i don't know if that's yeah the, the cor coral side of things like i don't know really if there's that much coral around the yeah the hauraki really but yeah the the um coast and and seabeds in a in a pretty bad way mm, yeah okay so now with this who so who's the main organization is it live live ocean is that is that the main organization that's pushing mm. pushing this whole approach and there's a lot of organizations that are advocating for change yeah. in the hauraki okay. Okay. Uh, i partnered up with live ocean when i was you know building the idea of this swim i had seen some of the work that they had been doing and was really impressed by uh, by that and and really kind of uh, targeted uh, targeted live ocean and unfortunately mm. they were they were very much on Great. on board with it and and took it to the next level in terms of the you know things like the media engagement and, and awareness that we were able to drive so it's been a fantastic partnership and Great. you know really natural fit but uh, yeah there's um, there's a few other groups that are that are trying to achieve the same thing so I think right now feels like and maybe it's because i'm kind of in the mix of it but it feels like there is a a bit of a turning point good mm. good so now who's got to come to the table because you've done this you've presented this you've got the support the awareness is there what how does that work who's who's the ones that are going to start implementing change and creating you know, mm. systems around that it's really from my understanding it's the central government that, yeah, that will be able to drive the the change and that's yeah only really possible through policy yeah, so that's always that's where we're targeting our efforts great mm. okay so for people that want to push that whether that be people within government policy makers how does that sort of become underway there's 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 obviously the donation piece because i'm presuming that's still open yeah uh, you can you can do donate to live ocean and that'll be put towards the efforts uh of both uh, the campaign for the Hauraki Golf and, and some of the other campaigns as well. But, uh, the you know, for the average person that wants to get involved with this, the best thing that you can do is to stay aware because, you know, attention is so fleeting. Yeah. So stay aware of the issue, spread the message and get in touch with your local MP and tell them that it's something that you care about yeah. and then they can under the system that we have advocate on your behalf yeah yeah no, great great well i'll add that in the show links all that because again just don't want to kind of steer away from that the efforts and 
your whole reason for doing it uh, and how Live Ocean approached it, um, especially from the tracking component. There was some high end stuff. I was tracking it for like throughout my whole day, the day you were yeah. doing it. I was waking up in the morning and I think I went for a swim session that morning. I'm like, fuck, John is doing fucking this morning. Can I was like, when they get up after like 300 meters, I'm like, nah, man, nah, man, I've got another 100, I've got another 200. And that just summoned that in me. But watching that coverage, uh, you know, as it underwent, it was, it was really cutting edge stuff. Yeah, that, that's one of the most exciting parts about following some of these swimming challenges. So, so you know, it's, uh, it's cool to be able to watch and it's, it wasn't just for this uh, swim, but normally there's some kind of a GPS tracker that gets hooked up to the support boat alongside swimmers. And then uh, Mike Cochran, who um, he's, uh, he's a swimmer, he runs a, a site that um, the data hooks into. So you can watch these GPS tracks and it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting to be able, being able to watch this uh, little red dot go <laughs> across, the, across the screen. Um, so yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that that's impl- that has been in place for all of the other swims as well. But it, yeah. it does help with um, bringing people into the yeah. into the story and and yeah. making it relative as well. I think, yeah. like you say, so you know you were doing a uh, a swim at the pool and and then being able to measure that against <laughs> against the map. Yeah, and um. I guess also with the authorization process of certifying mm. the actual that probably helps in that too, right? Because you've got all the data. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's necessary to have that GPS data. So we had two GPS trackers, and they were both feeding into that uh, into that tracking link that that you would have seen. But those are also going to be used for you know the submission that we need to make to the marathon mm. swimming. Fit- Federation, um, yeah, that uh, that's critical. And the other part of that submission is having observer logs. Okay. So there were three observers on uh, as part of the crew, uh, and they were maintaining these logs throughout the course of the swim. Things like you know what what time is it? Uh, what's the stroke count? Some of the notes around like feeding and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, what's the wind speed? What's the water temperature? What's the air temperature? And the reason for that is just so that it's as objective as possible, and mm. you know you can know that somebody has followed the rules, mm. followed the criteria without getting dragged along on a rope or something like that, mm. and hasn't had any assistance of any kind. Mm. On the on the swim, did. <laughs> did you spot anything was there any wildlife like any fishing counters no there was what? there was no recognizable marine life during the course of the swim so the crew saw a bunch of uh bunch of dolphins off off great barrier uh we passed by little barrier just around dusk and um and then obviously swimming through the night i didn't see a lot there and then as when day broke and, and through that whole second day, I didn't see anything. Wow, so you're literally just head down looking at that ocean, just moving yeah. ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, the water clarity was was reasonably good in places like, uh, you know, between Great Barrier and Little Barrier in particular. And then second day, it wasn't, wasn't so good at all. 
that's that's the thing. So I'm I'm, I'm sure there was stuff. I'm like yeah, I'm positive I mean, there. Yeah, <laughs> there could have not be. You know, yeah. the, the amount of sharks that are going through that strait is yeah. No, no, they're they're absolutely muckos, there. Muckos, a lot of muckos, you know. Yeah, bronzies and bronzies, and yeah. even some whites from from time yeah. to time as well. Sure. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that they were there, but uh, yeah, you know, there was there was nothing um, immediately that mm. uh, that I saw. Damn that camera! <laughs> oh man, rugged. I'm gonna need to get a proper proper stand, stand for it, i think yeah. it's probably just going to be now projecting our head i'm going to leave it at that is what <laughs> it is. um yeah so yeah okay there's that the the wildlife piece does that you must have been on your mind or now you would have just been so focused on the task i've had some encounters in the past and so the kind of the chance of it is always there but it's not something that i'm thinking mm. of mm. and you know i've done a lot of swimming in the lead up in the dark on my own in the ocean obviously in slightly different waters like Takapuna Beach isn't exactly Great Barrier Island <laughs> or Little Barrier so I you know I, I knew that they were probably going to be there but the chance of a shark attack is so low they're not really there yeah. to bother you and yeah. it's not like they're your friends as such but uh, they're not really there for you know to get to pay attention to, to mm. what you're doing. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I was, from that perspective, and rationally, I wasn't wasn't as concerned. Mm. I guess on uh, on a percentage basis, I've probably got a higher risk than anybody else just because of the amount of time that, that I do spend in the water. Yeah. But still, the chances of a shark attack or, or, shark attack or, or death by a shark are just so, so low. You know, more people get killed by coconuts falling on their heads than from shark attacks yeah, yeah. Mm. oh that's good i mean at least you could kind of yeah you didn't have to encounter that but yeah i would have been so intrigued as to have had like some form of like heat sonar just to have seen like <laughs> the amount of yeah, diversity yeah. that would have been around you yeah a curious part of it just followed you <laughs> just afterwards way. find yeah. out afterwards not, yeah, not yeah, at the yeah. time i know yeah <laughs> definitely don't want yeah. that so in, in terms of that with um the people that the crew that was with you so how did that work like because I want to talk about feeding windows to nutrition, but before mm. that, um, I saw that you you must have needed to have some sort of kind of identification beacon or some light. How did that work? Did you have like a float? What what was that process during the night swimming? Yeah, yeah. Yep, I had a light that was attached to the back of my goggles. Yeah, and it was like a flashing light. It was something that uh, that's actually used for walking your dog. So you put it on a on your dog collar <laughs> so it's waterproof and, and it you know emits this semi-regular uh light and then i had a couple of to add to that i had a couple of glow sticks down my uh down my togs okay and and that's basically how we um how we kept sight of how the crew kept sight of me during the course of the night that worked really well and then the the support boat alongside me uh that had like a red LED strip on the side, so that that was also creating a little bit of light, like kind of reflecting off the off the water. We had it red so that it wouldn't be blinding. Mm. Mm. So rather than it being like a pure LED, like a white LED, it was it was red, and that just allowed like a little bit of a soft glow to get into the into the rhythm of things. The light, unfortunately, on the second night, 
it had run out of battery, so we were using a, a different light, which didn't quite emit mm. uh, enough of a, yeah. Um, a beam. Yeah, enough of a beam, and um, uh, it was getting a little bit dangerous, so that was one of the learnings out of it, was okay. to make sure that we had, yes. had some really good lights for, for the next one, whenever that may be. Mm, fascinating, man. So... It was you, then you had, I, 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 from the coverage I was watching, you had like a main kind of vessel, mm -hmm. boat, and then there would have been a, a, a smaller inflatable boat. And that was the boat you were talking about to start the conversation, that, that was, there was a fear of that actually literally flipping on you. Yeah. So there was you, that small boat, and then kind of the main boat was that kind of the setup? Yeah. 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 That's right. There was a 56-foot launch, okay. and that housed you know, most of the crew except for the three people that were on the tender. Mm. The tender was, I think it was about four meters, had a center console, and that stayed alongside me, you know, somewhere around five meters off my left side for the duration of the swim. And we had three different roles on that tender. So there was a driver, an observer, and a feeder, and mm. three shifts for that. So they would cycle, cycle in every I think it was every three hours they would they would have one shift of three hours um wouldn't be much complaint from them realizing now oh, shit the bro here he's out here <laughs> next 30 hours yeah. i can't complain for a three-hour yeah. shift yeah <laughs> they they got in a pretty bad way though because the conditions were Oof. not so good and there was quite a bit of seasickness we had a couple of couple of medics on on the boat and the crew were being medicated with these um both pills and anti-nausea jabs, yeah. getting their pants pulled down and, and jabbed because <laughs> they were so seasick. And a couple of them had to abort a little bit earlier than than, than planned in the end of the swim because they were in such a bad way. And mm. I can appreciate that it must have been really difficult for them as well mm. because you know being seasick and for that period of time is just not it's not, not enjoyable. Yeah. yeah, I hate it. First, my first ever proper proper um outing on a boat i got seasick and i was like and it was with one of my hearty fisherman friends he's he's a real like yeah animal when it comes to that hunting and fishing and i knew it was going to be a long day and i started off the day slightly nauseous and then i was like oh it'll pass and like ended up being seasick i'm like fuck mm. I'm, I'm screwed but then fortunately it passed but that feeling for those that don't know it's it's well, it's nauseating. It's it's just a horrible feeling. You want out, but when you're out in the ocean, and at that point we're out by Great Barrier too, so we knew it was like an hour and a half, two hour mm. journey to get back. So I was kind of I had to be in it. You can't escape it. No, nah, no. Nah. Mm. Yeah. So with the um, feeding windows, I'm curious, like, what? How did that look? What was your feeding protocol? And my understanding too is part of the um, marathon that marathon federation swimming federation is you can't touch you have to be basically completely self-floating and self-propelled that's right body. so how yes. did it work in terms of feeding what was that process how did how did you kind of take in nutrients take in yeah so i can't touch the support boat that, that's one of the rules as you point out so it's got to be completely unassisted and we had it was mostly liquid feeds, so you know, taking down uh, these liquid supplements that that were in bottles. So the bottle was attached to a carabiner and rope, so the crew would chuck that out 
talking every 40 minutes. So the, the feeds were every 40 minutes and that was enough time to just get into the rhythm of things a little bit and not, not get it too broken up, but also short enough that I was taking in you know, uh, uh, supplements regularly and, and having that constant energy. Mm. So they'd, they'd chuck the bottle out to me. I'd you know flip the cap, chug it back and then be on my way. So the feeds weren't very long. There were some solids included as well. So I, I gave a feeding plan to the crew, which had, you know, over the course of the expected duration, about 46 feeds. And yeah, a mix of uh, two drinks in, in particular. So one of them is a drink called Perpetuum, and it's like a maltodextrin and protein blend. Okay. And then the other one is a drink by Pure Nutrition, and that's uh, these guys don't sponsor me, by the way. I'm just saying that's what I drink. But uh, electrolyte and carb drink. Yeah. And I found that cycling between those works pretty well for okay. me. And then on top of that, I was having some solids, so things like mashed potato and baby food pouches, um, like an avocado berry, and banana mix and baby food pouches. Mm. Um, Little mini donuts just for a bit of interest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, chocolate bars and then meatballs into the oh, menu. No. Never uh, end. No, oh. it was it was uh, off the tip of a little barrier actually because I was getting a bit of gut distress and just felt mm. like something that was palate fatigue. region would have been a factor. What was that? Palate fatigue. Just yeah, bored, yeah. You know, not. just you get a bit bored taking in yeah. liquids all the time. Mm, mm. So having something a little bit different, even if it meant that. I was chewing it down and probably yeah. swallowing some water at the same time, <laughs> some seawater. So every time you ate or took in nutrients, I'm presuming you were treading water and then just having one hand. Was that kind of your process? That's right. And you wouldn't not, have kept it's not that though, right? difficult to yeah. tread water in, in the sea as well because it is obviously it's got salt content. So you yeah. can kind of just bob there. Okay. Get a bit used to, you know, yeah, almost nice. like standing in a way nice. without having to use any energy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. just there and then crew would chuck out the chuck out the bottle. Yeah, like I said, chug, chug, chug. And then on my way, it got a little bit more difficult on the second day because the waves were coming up mm. and the boat would start, the support boat would start moving away from me while the rope's already out. And then as soon as the rope went taut, I would let it go because I can't have any kind of support. Mm. So there were, there were a few ca occasions where, <laughs> you know, I'm getting ready to take it and then the boat's kind of oh. being whipped off by the waves and the rope goes taut, I drop it and, you know, there goes all the feet in that bottle because, um, yeah. So that, that got interesting on, on that second, uh, second day, second night. And that was another one of the things that um, made it kind of unsafe when I was coming in to feed. And I had to come in a little bit closer. Like I say, there was that fear that the support boat, the, the little tender inflatable would come onto me, mm. knock onto me, over the top of me, mm. Mm. which was a very real risk. Yeah, oh, I could imagine, especially yeah. as well, your, the fatigue and sleep deprivation, you'll be, it would be hard to respond. Exactly. Know, react. Yeah, difficult for me mm. to react. Mm. 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 So how many calories were you taking in? So every forty minutes, you said you know the amount of mm. calories that would have been. I yeah, I've I've tended to aim for about one uh, gram of carb per uh, per kilogram of body weight traditionally. Yeah. But I, I okay. for this one, I didn't actually measure it out in that sense. I wasn't 
it's not like I was aiming for, you know, over a hundred or, or something like that. Like, mm. um, I think as it worked out, it probably would have been somewhere around, I don't know, 60 to 70 grams of, of carbs every hour Okay. at that. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't a significant, significantly mm. high number. We were very aerobic, so. Uh, of course. Yeah, it, but yeah, there, there was a calorie deficiency by yeah, by the end of it. I think be. I would have lost about yeah. five or six kilos during yeah. the during the course of the swim. Because yeah. mm. for every five hundred calories, approximately, you're only really absorbing and assimilating about two hundred to three hundred. So you're always going to have a deficit. Yeah, and yeah. it's 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 not realistic to over that duration to take in as much as you're expending as yeah. well. Yeah. So if if that's your Goal, then I, I yeah I, th I think it's yeah it's it's going to be very difficult to achieve mm, and mm. and can your gut actually handle that as mm. well? Yeah, you know, so I've always found that having a having less is more for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know in in you know say Ironman, um, some athletes will take in you know up to a uh, hundred grams of carbs or like ninety to one hundred grams of carbs mm. every hour, <laughs> like very high levels. Uh, which might make sense over over that mm. kind of distance and intensity level, mm. where they are really pushing that anaerobic mm. threshold. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I imagine is, was that a factor too? Like fat adaptation is that something you looked at, aware of, kind yeah. of approaching it? Because as you said, you were in that aerobic state. Mm. Is that something that you explored? Definitely, but yeah. not not ever, you know, dabbling with ketosis or anything yeah. like that. It was I've done a lot of swims faster than just understanding what, how my body reacts to that so you know i have found that when i'm in that swimming in that very much aerobic zone that i can go for probably you know four five six hours without needing any kind mm. of supplements or any anything of that nature but then i do start to tail off after that so you know if you if you look at the energy that, that your body needs during when you're in that aerobic zone uh, you can rely more on your fat stores yeah uh, and and just have carbs to to supplement that mm. or is it you know you'll know this as well if you're operating in those higher uh, zones heart rate zones that you do need um, you do need more carbs I guess unless you're Absolutely. unless you are very very much fat adapted yeah. did you have a heart rate tracker or anything like that I guess you had your did no, I, I, cu I couldn't wear my, my watch, so you're not allowed to. Oh wow, wear a not watch. even allowed to wear. No, Whew. you can't wear anything that gives Literally you any kind nothing. of statistics. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to. Why, I wouldn't what? want to either because okay, uh, because it you know while it weighs yeah, maybe three hundred grams or something, it it'll feel like a a ton after that, wow. that amount of swimming. So again, that's part of that. Um, yeah, you can wear something that shows you the time, yeah, yeah. but you can't have anything like time of day, uh, but you can't have anything that shows you, you know, duration of swimming or distance or anything of that nature. Interesting. Mm. Even though your crew can tell you that. Interesting. I wonder. Mm, I mean. Yeah. But it's better, it's better just to not yeah, wear not, it because, no, guess, because yeah. of the weight of it as much yeah, as true, anything. True. Yeah. Oh, I would have been fascinated what your heart, it must have been steady state. I'd say, your, I don't know, some, somewhere around 140 or so for yeah, the duration. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a real aerobic state. Mm. 
wow, for such a long time. Oh, man, that's fascinating. For a long period eh? of time, though, yeah. I would have loved to have, it would have been so cool to have tested your ketones after that. <laughs> I reckon they would have, yeah. Your, yeah. Blood sugar probably would have been through the roof. Or probably not, actually. Probably would have stabilized massively. My, yeah, the, my electrolyte uh, electrolytes got measured afterwards. Yeah. And that was all fine. So that got measured at the hospital. I had very high levels of uh, something called CK. I, I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it's indicative of muscle breakdown. Okay. And creatine, creatine kinase. Or, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, it makes sense. There would have been a catabolic yeah. kind of state your body would have had to have been taking from your own resources because yes. you would have been in the deficit. That That's makes right. that, that does make sense. Yeah. That does make sense. And that was one of the reasons why they kept me in the hospital afterwards yeah, as well yeah. because there was concern that if that was too high, then it, you know, it's, it's not very good. So it, I had a mild case of rhabdomyolysis. Yeah. Oh, really? You, mm. had, you had a mild case of it? Yeah. Damn. Mm. What's that? The liver sequestering the byproduct of... You can't process the protein, or what? It, what right? And it's got to do with the uh, yeah. I've I've done a little bit of reading up on it. I think it's more about your kidneys. So Kidney, a toxic yeah. protein from your muscles when they're breaking down gets yeah. released into your yeah, bloodstream. Extremely and, toxic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That can kill you mm. essentially. Yeah. yeah. So well, they were. Yeah. The low level. Oh. They were pumping me yeah, a, yeah, yeah. full of IV fluid IV, to yeah. <laughs> to rehydrate and um and just flush out my kidneys. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh wow, man! Honestly, yeah. it's this whole thing, eh? It's it's damn inspiring. I imagine the people viewing and listening will kind of feel the same way. So, with that finishing um, finish line at Campbell's Bay, uh, after that you went straight into the hospital. So, what 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 happened there? You touched on it just then, but what what was that like? Once you touched land, what the heck did that feel like for you? Oh, it felt pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> It was Wavy. it was a moment of must have been. yeah I was I was quite dazed and you know because I'd been bobbing around in the swell and waves for so long and been swimming for so long that being back on dry land was a bit weird in a way, but it was a, a big relief to just stop, mm. <laughs> and and then you know I got guided back uh, guided into the ambulance so the plan was to have an ambulance there, get checked up, and if everything was all okay get released. And in the back of the ambulance, uh, I was, you know, hypothermic, as I said. So they put some warming blankets on me and, and got me back up to temperature. And I, I rebounded relatively quickly mm. back up to a somewhat stable temperature. Uh, and then, you know, they, they had enough kind of uh, concern, not, not overly concerns, but they just wanted as a precaution to get me over to the hospital to get some of my... Mm blood taken and, and see how things were looking. So we went into Auckland Hospital, got, got over to the ED there and uh, got my blood taken and then they put me in an overnight. Uh, you know, I still still just had my togs and <laughs> togs on and, and sand on my feet sitting in the bed and uh, had, had, a, had a few people around me um, yeah, come, and, come and visit, which was good. And uh, yeah, hooked, hooked me up to the IV pretty quickly and yeah, I was just basically in the in the hospital. Got moved around a couple of times, uh, but yeah, basically they're just getting pumped full of IV in, until they were um, happy to happy to release me. Mm. I didn't get a lot of sleep that night because mm. <laughs> when, when you're getting that much fluid put through you, you you get the urge to go to the toilet. <laughs> and so yeah, I was I was hooked up to it. 
<laughs> on like a, um, something that I that I couldn't actually move, and then uh, had to had to get the nurse to you know come and unhook me each time that I wanted to to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I probably did that like half a dozen times <laughs> through the course of the night. Oh man, you mm. must have slept once that kind of got like, regulated somewhat. Your sleep, how, how was the sleep? Still pretty average. Like yeah. it, it took me a few nights to actually get like a restful sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. The nervous system's just so jacked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was still, yeah, I was still hallucinating after I left the hospital. Yeah, because wow. just lack oh, of so sleep. You, so and, you had you had hallucinations near the end. Yeah, yeah. Wow. At the near the end of the swim. <laughs> what did what was what did what you what did you experience? What, what the, were you seeing? So I I saw a snowman on the front of the support boat, <laughs> which is uh, when going back through it later, it was my buddy Jamie who was wearing a white puffer jacket. <laughs> but I, I saw a snowman and, and then one of my other buddies, Mark, he was dressed up in like a potato suit, which was a bit weird. Um, like that's what you saw. He actually was dressed. No, no, <laughs> like, no, no that, that's just what I saw. He, he wasn't dressed up in that. Oh man! Uh, I Imagine saw, that if they actually oh, purposely no, that. just did that. They're like, you know, just yeah. acting normal and in a freaking potato suit. <laughs> um, I saw solar panels and and picture frames on the water surface, which is a bit weird. And then wow. when I was looking down, I saw uh, tiles. Wow! In the in the water. So those those were the things that I remember seeing, yeah. Fascinating. Mm. And it was a bit weird just dealing with that and not not really sure exactly what what's real or not mm. when you when you start seeing that kind of stuff. Mm. 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 Oh, fascinating. I want to kind of spring this on you because I'm real intrigued, and what you've done is essentially it. And a lot of what this podcast is about is service fundamentally, mm. living life as a service. And what does that mean to you? I think what I've found through the evolution of the last few years is that my purpose, my ikigai is uh, the convergence, and, and this has become more obvious recently, is the convergence of you know what I'm doing with swimming and the ocean conservation. Great. And uh, you know things like uh, earning a lot of money or you know material things they don't they don't really interest me so really what i'm looking for is um is what can i do to create a some kind of a positive impact and for me that's uh, a lot more uh personally and intrinsically satisfying than you know being able to buy the newest iphone or, or whatever it might be and and so i'm i'm really leaning into that and i think there's still a lot of blue sky to to go and right in that in that area um and uh yeah i'm excited to see how the next you know five ten years un unfolds awesome, <laughs> yeah that's uh it's it's um good now to feel like uh i'm leaning into something that um feels right yeah you know and, and for a long time and i think this is this is one of our struggles as as people is trying to find that thing that um that lights you up yeah and uh when you find that it's quite precious so you just gotta beautiful man. you gotta lean into it mm. good on yeah. you yeah yeah i think that's the whole pursuit for all of us in life is 
finding that beacon, that light, whether it be something that brings joy or fundamentally something that brings immense meaning, mm. you know? And it sounds like you've found that. And yeah, that's kind of why I like doing these conversations and having these conversations with people like yourself is it brings that back to me and inspires me personally. But I think these can be utilized as tools for everyone on this mission. And yeah. whatever it may be, I think there's also the idea that how you got to where you got, it wasn't necessarily intended and all mapped out that I'm going to be an ocean swimmer and do this for ocean, ocean conservation. It's like, nah, you kind of went on the path. This thing came up. It's uncomfortable, so it should be, but then mm. now you've found this immense value and meaning. I think yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's been an amazing journey. And I, I think the other thing that I'd add to that as well is for anybody that's kind of impatient about finding whatever their thing is, is just keep mm. on, you know, keep on looking and uh, eventually you'll, you know, I think you'll stumble across it as long as you're active and intentional about I it. I believe that. Mm. I truly do. And you always have a choice. Uh, yeah. So, on that, I'd love to know, and I guess the people know now, like, where to next? <laughs> Jono, you've already done something so immense, but how do you sort of build upon this now? And where do you kind of, where are you setting your sights next? I don't have any anything immediately obvious that, that I'm driving to, and I think it's cool. important to have a bit of space after, yes. you know, do, doing something like this. I've got an idea, and we'll see if that, sprouts above ground eventually awesome. but uh, in the in the short term you know, I'm catching up on some of the parts of life that I neglected <laughs> during the during the training journey yeah. and um, yeah I, I think I'll, uh, I'll I'll take my time getting getting back into <laughs> getting back into it and um, allow my body a, a little bit of rest I got I've got a couple of smaller things on, on one of them's not even so small but uh, events on the uh, swimming calendar that uh, that I'll be looking forward to. So cool. doing an extreme ice mile in July of this year in oh, a couple of wow. months, which is um, uh, anything over basically extreme. an extreme ice mile is anything over two k in ice swimming, which is uh, less than five degree water. So that's uh, that's a pretty interesting experience. And then next year doing uh, the North Channel, which we talked about earlier between yeah. oh, Ireland wow. and Scotland. Amazing. So I have signed up for that, yeah. So I'm going to do that in July 2024. That's an event. That's an actual event. Well, you do it so low, but you you sign up with a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I paid, paid my deposit and I'll jump over there. That's something that scares me, so I have, have awesome, to do it. Man. <laughs> yeah. And then beyond that, we'll see. Yeah, great. It's yeah. oh, amazing. I'm... Yeah, I'm looking forward to it now. I guess we've got this relationship. I'd love to sort of pick your brain and for anyone reaching out, um, wanting to reach out, where what's the best ways of finding? Finding you? finding me? Probably yeah. Instagram, really. Yeah, That's cool. where I'm most Great. active. Uh, I've got a, a blog link on, on there as well where you can read a little bit more around yeah. my experiences, but that's uh, at John O'Riddler, 1D. Great, I'll be sure to add that uh, in the show notes. So for the person that's um, swimming specific, I'm kind of being biased here. It's kind of, I'm asking for myself, but I'm sure there's swimmers out there for those that are wanting to kind of sort of push their limits, swim, swimming specific um, and really improve upon that. What, what are some good tools and methods and tech from technique to sort of volume? Like what, what would mm. you suggest there? I guess it depends on what you're aiming for really. So if you're doing a half or full, full. Um, and that's 3.8k distance so i think the 
what you would be wanting to build up to is being comfortable, obviously, for uh, for doing that distance, but also doing that at some kind of speed. So, you know, using you as an example, doing some pace work, so getting into the pool, joining up with a squad, uh, that'll enable you to develop your technique. You'll get more efficient through the water if you have good technique, uh, but then also getting out into, because it's going to be in a lake, doing some race type specific mm. training where you're doing something similar, doing that, that kind of distance mm. and intensity mm. uh, in, in a lake and maybe that could be like Pupuki for example, okay. around Takapuna. Yeah. Um, so your, your training is going to be geared toward whatever event you're leading to. But if somebody wants to get into swimming, probably the best thing to do is really to find somebody who's, who has done something similar, link up with them and then ride there coattails yeah cool <laughs> and uh you know you'll, you'll get a lot of ideas out of out of that community and um and improve immeasurably if you're doing it with somebody else or a group of people yeah, versus yeah. doing it on your own yeah mm. okay great practical i like it yeah well um not much more on mine is anything you'd like to um kind of share more especially you know live ocean the the efforts there where people could kind of turn to is anything you'd like to touch upon there well we talked about donating before so if yep. you do want to check out a little bit more about what live ocean is doing you can go to liveocean.com great and you can read up more about the foundation and if you you know if you want to donate to to the cause i think we've covered off a, a pretty good range of topics otherwise so yeah yeah, yeah if anybody wants to reach great. out to me then just you know ping me a message on on instagram yeah happy to help with uh swimming yeah, <laughs> swimming awesome. related subjects or you know, if you're interested in ocean conservation as well. well. Awesome. Mm. Yeah. Great. Awesome, Jono. Well, appreciate it, man. Thank Thanks you, brother. so much. Great. Over and out. Thank you all for listening. And yeah, we'll speak soon. Goodbye. How was that episode? What did you think? What came up? What stood out? I know for me, hearing even just his process with um, his training in the ice bath that just baffled me and blew me away because I myself have endeavoured into ice baths but never for the times and durations that he was committing to and that in itself just speaks volumes to the mindset and the tenacity that this man had and everything about it from the sleep deprivation to the taking in of nutrients to the seemingly mundane nature of doing such a feat it just boggles me and I was just so 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 grateful to be able to have him on this uh, podcast and have this conversation with him and John I do thank you and appreciate you taking the time and also to the Live Ocean their efforts in raising awareness for the Hodaki Golf I think what they're doing is um, very noble and it's for a very important cause because we want to be having these oceans for our future generations to enjoy and appreciate and fish from and explore. So there's not much more to be said on today's episode as Jono covered so much. Sounds like he's recovered and training well and I look forward to following many more of his adventures. On a quick side note, just remembering to check out So Well on Instagram and Facebook and the website will be officially launching very soon as it is being it's being tended to let's just let's just say that much i won't say much more love you all thank you so much for tuning in and speak to you in the next one goodbye